This is the Rise City Church Sermon Podcast. We are a church in Gresham, Oregon, on a mission to rise up and saturate our city with the gospel. We would love for you to join us on Sundays. For more information, check out our website, rise.cc. Whether you already follow Jesus or are exploring Christianity, we hope that you experience the power of God through this message. Why is it that steps towards God and faith are so often met with resistance? Why do temptations to cave, compromise, or call it quits abound? In the pages of the Bible, we learn about a battle that rages beneath, a spiritual force at work under the surface. Our opposition is described in three categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three enemies poised against our progress in Christ. As the devil schemes to deceive us and the flesh desires to distract us, and a world set on establishing this broken state as idyllic, it is time to unmask the face of our enemy and fight back. Through the gospel, their power is shattered, the enemy is vanquished, and power to overcome by faith is unleashed. There is a real spiritual conflict, but Jesus is the great conqueror. Let us strengthen our souls for war, prepare our minds for battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Man, how do you guys like that Russell guy? Oh my goodness. I gave him such a big high five when he was coming back. I'm totally thrown off right now. Like my headpiece thing is coming out, but I love that guy. This is awesome. Well, welcome to Rise. If you're new, my name's Nolan, and we just started a new series last week with our pastor, Jason, called World Flesh Devil. Just a really feel-good series this morning. So uh, happy fall, you know, World Flesh Devil. And uh, what we're doing is we are looking at the enemies as categorized in the teachings of Scripture. Uh, now, how many of you guys are caught up with, I think it's Prime Video, Prime Video's Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings? Okay, there's like eight of you that are passionate cult fans of Lord of the Rings, and the rest of you guys are, uh, you know, losing at life. So um, I won't spoil anything, but Lord of the Rings, it, it's basically the same story if you've seen the movies in so many ways, so I'm really not spoiling anything. But the truth is, you have this world of like dwarves and elves and men, and they're sort of deciding what to do with Sauron as he advances the army of orcs, right? Uh, and so what the question is not for these people at this point in the story, if you're all caught up, it's not like, do we go to war or do we not go to war? The real question is, what are you going to do about the war that's already there? And that's what's going on here in this kind of really punk rock series we're involved in right now, right? Uh, last week, Jason, our pastor, kicked off this series addressing that the biblical categories of enemy, world, flesh, and devil are a reality. The only question is, what do we do about it? And the answer we're going to find is through the power of the gospel, we triumph in Jesus. And so um, if you're new to Christianity, we are going to look at these categories of the enemy presented in scripture. And for you, this might be a little different. And what I would say is um, that this is going to be a different perspective worth hearing worth leaning into. And I'd love to give you this as kind of a, an intro to like, here's part of what Christianity looks at. And I will say this on the front end uh, for all of us, that um, th today's teaching will be, if we have on one end of the spectrum, 
sermon, which is maybe more heart-targeting, and teaching, which is maybe more head-targeting. This will be much more on the like head-than-heart side uh, compared to normal. So uh, for, you know, uh, those of you who are more like emotionally connected, healthy people, like, like take notes, track along, like uh, do your best here. And for the rest of you nerds, like let's go in. All right, let's go in. Um, so we have three enemies in the Christian worldview, and that is the world, that is an internal, or excuse me, the flesh, the flesh, that is an internal enemy. The flesh is our sinful desire that draws us to what destroys us. The second is an external enemy, and that is the world. And that's the one we're going to be dealing with today, the world. And an external enemy, uh, finally, is this spiritual enemy, the devil, which is personal evil. And they all work together such that the devil is sort of behind the scenes uh, taking the bait of the world, the temptations of the world, putting it on kind of a proverbial hook, trying to like lure our flesh that within us draws us to these temptations. You guys see how that kind of works. C.S. Lewis, um, in his famous classic screw tape letters, uh, and if you don't know the story, it's basically an uncle demon training a nephew demon how to like take believers out. Uh, there's essentially this argument between the, or this, um, Yeah, this argument presented by the uncle demon where he says one of the great triumphs of the demonic is that we have gotten Christian believers and really the world universally to look down on and think it's regressive and passe to talk about this category of worldliness. And so today what I want to do is actually talk about the category of worldliness uh, so that we are prepared for it. And so here's our question. What is the world? Biblically speaking, the world comes from the Greek term cosmos, cosmos, where we get the term cosmos, okay? And cosmos is used three different ways in the New Testament. The first is planet Earth. The second is humanity uh, generally and even positively, for God so loved the world. And then lastly, this word cosmos or world is used the way we're going to refer to it today, the sinful world system at odds with its creator, Uh, Cornelius Plantinga writes this, the world is the pattern of beliefs, social forms, dispositions, and values that are institutionalized in people's collective lives. Building off this, John Mark Comer writes this, the world is a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized in a culture organized around the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of of good and evil. David Wells puts simply this, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. This week I was uh, taking my son and our, uh, you know, my, my two littlest uh, to go frog hunting. Uh, anybody do frog hunting? You know, as a regular activity. I do now. So uh, we, we go, and he found this bog that I don't think anybody else really knows about, so it's like our secret bog. And the reason why I know that is because when you walk in here, there's nobody else there, and there are just a zillion frogs that as you step, they're all like jumping out under you. Like, I mean, we've looked everywhere for frogs and lakes and stuff, and it's like kind of hard to find them and really capture them. Here, it's just in abundance, which is absolutely disgusting, you guys. Like, I'm just, like, I, I never liked creatures when I was a kid. 
kid, but I'm like a great dad. And so I'm ca- I literally caught eight frogs in this bog. My son's in there like taking his clothes off in the waters with like all this gear and he's, he's catching frogs. And I was thinking about it as we're wading through all these like tree frogs and other species of frogs, like, like this is a, an extraordinary abundance. Like why are they flourishing here? And of course, part of that is because Clearly, no one else has found it, because if they had a seven-year-old, they'd all be gone, just having a seven-year-old, they know. And then secondly, because this is the perfect ecosystem in which these filthy amphibians can grow up. It provides that perfect environment or ecosystem that they can flourish. Now, when we talk about the world, this idea of a world system, um, what we're talking about is a sociological ecosystem that exists in humanity that provides the perfect environment for all of our desires to be affirmed and to flourish, including and especially our sinful desires. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this, is, this feels strange, but here's what I would contend. You see the reality of the world everywhere. In fact, How many of you have had the experience where you're watching the news on your phone or whatever, and you find yourself looking at the evil that seems to sort of progressively get worse and say, how can we be this far along, and yet all of these things seem to be getting worse in our humanity? Herein lies what is so compelling about Christianity to me. As somebody who became a Christian a little later, who didn't necessarily grow up uh, buying into the Christian worldview, the Bible presents a worldview that accounts for the kind of deep philosophical frustration we have as we watch the news. In categories like this, the world. We see unbelievably worse things happening all the time and say, how can this be? And it's as though when we read our Bibles, the ancient authors of Scripture respond to us, we have had a category for this all along. And so what I want to do is uh, now look at a biblical theology of the world. And so we're literally going to walk from Genesis to Revelation. This is like my favorite point in all of, you know, church is like, now we're going to go deep in the Bible. So track with me. The verses will be on the screen if you you struggle to flip around through these. Um, But we get an idea of the world biblically from Genesis to Revelation. Starting in the first couple pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, we see the worldly desire of the original sin. The worldly desire. Genesis 3 says this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. What we find is as the serpent, the enemy, the devil himself begins to tempt humanity, he tempts them with these external desires. And what they are is that it's good for food, satisfying, delight to the eyes, beautiful and desirable. And lastly, and most importantly, that they could be wise. They could be their own God. So it's a scraping after power. And the story goes on. Humanity plunged into sin begins to have a system and a unification around rebellion against God. It's not just Eve and Adam alone there with their internal desires. It's now gone corporate in its and global in its scale. Genesis 6, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
It's a real feel-good verse of the Bible right there. That the thoughts of our heart as humanity only evil continually. It gets to the point that we see a great flood as sort of a cleansing of the earth takes place to restart and recreate humanity. But even after that, in Genesis chapter 11, we find a significant story, the Tower of Babel. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we disperse. Over, we are dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Therefore, its name was Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So, in the flood, God sort of wipes out all of the evil that humanity has started to embrace. And what happens here is they're sort of building this tower into the heavens. They're gathering around, which is fascinating, because what God had commanded in Genesis 1 was that humanity would fill the earth, disperse across the face of the earth, and subdue it. And here, after the flood, they're sort of building this tower as if to say, you can't stop us with another flood. And instead of filling the earth and subduing it, we're staying right here to subdue you, God. That's where the story leads. The story of the Tower of Babel tells of a unified humanity using its resources to establish a city that is the antithesis of what God intended when he created the world. The city builders see themselves as establishing their own destiny without any reference to God himself. And this is the category of the world. And it sort of finds its apex in a city that becomes an empire, that becomes an archetype or a category in scripture called Babylon. Babylon. The, the city and ultimately empire of Babylon was this city hell-bent on sensuality, greed, indulgence, violence, and power. And it was a city that sort of embodies all the brokenness of our humanity to scale. There's this iconic moment where the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, steps out onto his enormous palace that overlooks the world and says this in Daniel 4.30, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This is a scraping after divinity. It, it reminds me actually of one of the core den, uh, tenets of Mormonism, which says, as God is, man can be. That religion and the world over in all of our institutions and in all of our culture is this driving force in us saying, we don't need God. We are God. We don't need God's definition of right and wrong. We define what is right and wrong? It's an embrace of ultimate humanism to scale in both government, popular culture, and our own hearts. First Peter takes this idea of Babylon, and we'll continue to take this idea of Babylon throughout the teaching as a categorical archetype. And so uh, we find Peter writing in the New Testament far after Babylon as an empire has fallen uh, to, to Persia and so forth. Peter says this, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Peter's like, hey, we're out here in, in Babylon. 
and we send you greetings. He's not in Babylon. We know historically he's in Rome. But he's using Babylon as a category for the sinful world systems that we live in. And this culminates in the book of Revelation chapter 17. Uh, The book of Revelation is awesome. It's often not taught. But I think when we understand the holistic picture of Scripture, Revelation's pictures and illustrations start to become clear. Chapter 17 takes the idea of Babylon and begins to use it as this archetype uh, depicting Babylon as a prostitute. It says this, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. What's fascinating is what is a category in scripture, a theological idea in scripture, and that's alive and well today. What I'm contending is that the spirit of Babylon is alive and well today. That the culture around us is not merely neutral, but has an agenda for you. It has an agenda for you, driven by the spirit of Babylon, even today. This is true, I would argue, of the Pacific Northwest. That there are certainly things within the culture that we can embrace as Christians and see as beautiful. In one sense, the culture itself is just corporate humanity, right? Expressing itself through art and technology and media and all beautiful and good things. In fact, God intended in the beginning for human beings as his image bearers to be culture creators. But what I also want us to see is in this category, when we put them up against one another, that culture has beautiful things like good coffee and Kova coffee, and like, right, and and wonderful things that, that Portland produces and Gresham produces, but it also has broken things that have a real agenda for your life. Would you accept it? Do you, do you see this reality? And what makes Babylon so insidious, according to Revelation 17, is uh, not that it's ultimately just scary, That actually what's so insidious about it is that on the surface, it's less scary and more seductive. In fact, let's let's look at three things that we find in Revelation 17 about this idea of the world's culture, pop culture, what is right in our own eyes uh, as demonstrated here in, in this passage. Number one, Babylon is insidious because she is attractive. She is attractive. Verse 4, we read that she's arrayed in purple scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. In verse 6 later on, it says that the apocalyptic writer here says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. What's interesting is that when we see the world, it's not always that we're like, oh, look at the world out there, what a dark culture. Oftentimes, even for Christians, we look at the world and we say, I kind of want that. Like, I kind of want that. What about me? Why can't I have that? Number two, her influence is pervasive. In verse 15, when we did not read, later on it says, where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, this, that wherever you go, the culture there also contains influence and and imbuedness of the spirit of Babylon. 
It, it, it runs in the face of our mindset as Christians. And if, and if you, you lean towards Jesus and press into Jesus and know Jesus, that says, man, this is Babylon here in the Northwest. So let's like move to a red state because Babylon's not there. What this passage says is you move to that red state and you find Babylon takes a different form here. That Babylon is pervasive. You can't move to another country. You can't escape. You could do like the monks in history and start a monastery out in the desert and you will find Babylon there in your monkery. That's what this is saying. Finally, Babylon is insidious because she expects allegiance. She expects allegiance. Verse 5, we read this, like, if, if you notice this, you were like, wait a second. Verse 6 says, she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the followers of Jesus. And you're like, well, it's a good thing that I'm not a saint, you know. I haven't been sainted by the Catholic Church. But if you understand the word saint here, it just means followers of Jesus. You've been made holy by the blood of Jesus dying for your sin in your place, fully forgiven. And when he rose again, you became a saint just by faith in him. So you are in this category that, that Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints. Um, if you become a Christian today, I just want to let you know that if you want to truly embrace following Jesus, or if you're a follower of Jesus and you, you, you seek to grow and to know him better, um, you may lose friends in the process. I wish I had like a better pitch for Christianity than this. Some of you guys are looking for hope. I'm like, join us so that Babylon can eat us. <laughs> you may lose your job. You may inadvertently create enemies that you didn't want to create. You may be looked at as a bigot or regressive because of following Jesus in Babylon. Or on the other end of the spectrum, if you care at all about justice and racial reconciliation and the way of Jesus applied to those categories, you may be falsely accused of being woke or leftist by Babylon. You, you have this new belief that may get you intellectually dismissed. Uh, so here is the deal. Um, Babylon is alive and well, and it's not just like the world out there is bad and we are good. Actually, all of us are tempted and fall in to the lure of Babylon. That's actually the bad news today. All right, uh, there's a lot of bad news. I don't know what to do with this. This is a, this is a hard teaching. Uh, so what I'm going to do is, I, I think what I'm going to do is quote Kevin DeYoung, all right? And he has this list given in an article literally about this topic of ways that we fall in to Babylon and her uh, seduction because Babylon is alive and well today in isms. And he's going to give us a list of isms, all right? And these isms, I'm going to be just real, like as we read them, these are very convicting. You're like, wow, like... I'm a bad person. What the heck? You're reading through these isms. So I'm just letting you know when you feel bad as we read this list, you know, email Kevin DeYoung. The Bible teaches this is Kevin DeYoung, not me. Um, let, let's walk through it. The first one is this, scientism. Scientism. Truth is only found in what can be measured, tested, and published by peer review. Biological determinism. I am what my genes tell me to be. Protestism. If I always speak out against the evil out there, I can no ignore the evil inside. Healthism. Younger is always better. And when I get old, there's a pill and a video to help me feel young again. Entertainmentism. If it doesn't make me feel something now, then it can't be worth my time. Voyeurism. 
My life is disappointing and boring, so I will do all I can to peer in on celebrities whose lives are more exciting and more dysfunctional. And for those of you that think that's not, you're like, I don't look at People Magazine like, you know, I'm not, you know, a joke like that. You're looking at social media, Instagram, TikTok, whatever else, the news, and you fall into this category too. That was me, not Kevin Young, so you can blame me for that part. Partyism. Life pretty much stinks most days, but once in a while, or once or twice a week, I have the time of my life, and then later I throw up. Politicism. Everything bad is the other guy's fault, and everything that needs to be changed in the world can be voted on by Congress. Familyism. Christ and his church take a back seat to soccer and band. Slow down, Kevin DeYoung. Like, relax, drink a cup of coffee, bro. Holy moly, he's coming after us. Sexualityism. My parts are my business, and no God can tell me what they're for or when or how to use them. Or this last one, shoppingism. It's not idolatry if it's for my kids or on sale. I thought I was like, okay, reading this list, and I got to that one. I was like, I'm in utter sin, you guys. <laughs> the sales be getting me and Lindsay, bro. It's... <laughs> but all of these had the lie of Babel, Babylon underneath. And so um, what is a Christian posture towards Babylon? I want to quickly present three things. And here's the deal. We're like, this is not an us versus them. I want to be very clear. This isn't Christians good, Babylon bad, and therefore, like, let's go into culture war. Instead, the, the Bible is much more nuanced than that, and the teaching of Jesus are much more, it's more nuanced than those of us who are lean more the culture war, embrace homeschool, and run off to a red state folks can, like, tolerate. And it's more nuanced, the teaching of Jesus, than the Christians who say, hey, let's not be regressive. We need to be academic and relevant and embrace every new hashtag out there. It's more nuanced than both of those categories. And here's the three we see in Scripture. Number one, following Jesus is the embrace of reverse values to the world. Following Jesus is to embrace reverse values to the world. John 15, if the wor- this is Jesus speaking. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me first before it hated you. If you, are, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, to embrace the way of Jesus, to follow and, and experience the gospel and then live it out, is living by a different story. It's being shaped by a different set of assumptions. It's demonstrating a different ethic. G.K. Chesterton writes, therefore, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it most. What he's saying there is that those of us who look most different from the world because of Jesus tend to have the most influence because it's compelling. It's like that's something different. We are not to be of the world. But we read this, number two, the church is not just not of the world, but the church is a contrast culture on display within the culture. On display within the culture, not retreating from. John 17, Jesus prays, I have given them your word, and the, word is ha- the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There are two kind of uh, ways we can get this wrong um, in, in, regard, in light of Jesus' teaching here. One, in light of this understanding that the world actually has the spirit of Babylon, is uh, we can embrace what's called sectarianism. I did forewarn you that this is like a little bit more of an academic teaching. Sectarianism, which is essentially to embrace isolation from the culture. This is where uh, monks in history, desert fathers and mothers, were called desert fathers and mothers because they literally went, took, took to the desert. They're like, the world's messed up. We're going to the desert, which is not a bad idea, actually. I don't know. Like, I feel like that's what I'm doing with my life right now is going to the desert. Uh, but they did that to get away from culture, okay? Um, and number two, the alternative is what we would call syncretism, the equal and opposite error, which is to assimilate to the culture, a kind of marrying of Christianity and the culture, where we start to say, no, the, let, let's lean into all the ideas that is presented by the world. Um, if you know church history, or if you don't know church history, it's well worth reading. Like, study church history. It's fascinating. Even um, non-Christians look at the rise of Christianity and say, this is fascinating. I think of one non-Christian author, um, Rodney Stark, who uh, studied the rise of Christianity and said, I got to figure this out. Why did a worldview that makes no sense in the Roman Empire overcome the Roman Empire? Like, how this isn't even possible. And so they study this because it's fascinating. And that's exactly what happens. Christianity rises and becomes the dominant worldview in the midst of an empire that opposed it. That is, that is, our, that is our story. But what's fascinating is by fi about 500 AD, there is a leader named Constantine of the Roman Empire. An emperor arises, and he um, makes Christianity the official state religion of the empire. And so you would say, oh my gosh, we won, right? Christianity won. We took over the culture. The culture war has happened and we came out victorious. But if you actually know the history, that was a subtle death blow to Christianity. Because where the church was then getting into the empire after Constantine does this, the empire begins getting into the church. It's the reversed effect of what you would expect and that is why, number three, we find this in Scripture, that Christians are called to resist the powerful pull of the world. Christians are called to resist the powerful pull of the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. By the way, those three right there are exactly a reference to Genesis 3, the things that Eve was attracted to in the forbidden fruit. The lust of the uh, flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, which is to believe in Jesus, abides forever. So Christians are called to pull, uh, to resist the powerful pull of the world. Um, here's the question that arises. Like, how do you do that? How do you, if this is how insidious Babylon is, if it's everywhere, if it's pervasive, if it, it pulls on each one of us, how do we resist? And I would contend that we resist by understanding the lie and confronting it with the truth. Understanding the lie. And I think Genesis 3, that reference to Eve's temptation, 
actually gives us three categories for how the world lies to us and then how we can, in like kind, confront those lies with the truth from our hearts as we live day in and day out. So let's look again at uh, Genesis 3, 5. It says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that's um, uh, the, 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 the lust of the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. This is the pride of life. And so we could say the three lies um, that the world promises this. One, it gives us this thirst for satisfaction. Babylon says, I will satisfy you. You will enjoy this and you will feel whole at the end. Secondly, Babylon lies to us and, and offers us this lust for beauty. This is desirable. It is attractive. It's good. It's beautiful. You can be beautiful too, and you will, you will enjoy this. And then number three, it offers us the lie that is this grasping after power. You can control your surroundings. You can be safe here. You can, you can have real power. You won't need God. And I would say within this grasping after power is a kind of a secondary lie. It's this audacity of redefined truth. We don't need God's truth. We can come up with truth for ourselves. And I would confront each one of these lies with this. One, if we just move through them, one, the thirst for satisfaction. The world offers us satisfaction, but that satisfaction is always empty. That's the truth. The lie of the world is you will be satisfied here, and the truth is, no, you will be left empty. That is why, for those of us who struggle with addiction, you have to return to your addiction over and over and over again. And you have to increase the hit in order to achieve the same high. Well, why is that? It's because what the world offers is ultimately empty. It does not satisfy. And so we just have to keep going after it and keep uh, increasing the hit. Secondly, if we talk about the lust for beauty, it's not actually beautiful. It is an illusion. It draws you in only to leave you empty and disgusted. I think of a story in the life of David. Um, he has a son named Amnon. And Amnon is sick and beside himself with lust for a girl named Tamar, who is in uh, the royal family as well. And he is, he is overcome with this lust for her until finally he, he attacks and overpowers her and defiles her. And the result in this story is that not only is she traumatized and deeply wounded for the rest of her life, Amnon himself is disgusted by even the sight of her. Ultimately, these things that the world offers and says this is beautiful leaves us feeling disgusted because it's only ugliness inside. And then finally, this clenching after power, which is a huge one in our day, especially in the church. This clenching, this grasping after power. It says, hey, you will be safe if you just control your surroundings. You will, be, you will enjoy life if only you achieve this level. You need power. Ultimately, it promises safety, but leaves us with self-destruction each and every time. It actually destroys the very reality we're trying to build up. I was listening to this story recently of a, of a church leader. And uh, how many of you guys uh, kind of track with some of the continuous falls of major church leaders that is happening right now? 
Like there's just this massive reckoning in, in the church, capital C. And one leader um, came back to tell his story. And what happened is um, he took on a, a large-ish church, about 2,000 people, as a young man, a very sincere youth pastor, takes it over. And then ultimately they grow by like 25% a year, reaching lost people and discipling people until this church grows to about 10 or 20,000 regular attendants. Um, and what happens is every year this is happening, and then one year it plateaus at that about 20,000. And um, this leader is starting to just really struggle as, as he hits this plateau, to which I'm like, that's, I feel like that's a pretty good plateau. Like, I'm not, I wouldn't be, I don't know how you're mad at that plateau. It's 20,000 people following Jesus. Like, I, I don't know. It's just crazy to me. Uh, but the feeling inside he's really honest about was he had this insecurity because he'd led all these really young leaders, and now he is getting older, and he's saying, maybe what they're going to say is, you're past your prime. That's the reason we're not growing. And that they're going to take his spot, and they're going to move him along because he's aging. And so uh, for those of you who are not 20 years old, you, you can kind of relate with like, oh, I understand the feeling there, the insecurity and how that would be allowed to grow. And it gets to this point where he starts feeling like, no, the real issue is you guys won't listen to me. And so he starts exercising anger to get his will done. He's like, if you would just listen to me, we would continue to grow. You're the problem, not me. There's this one uh, board meeting. He talks about how they have all these campuses, right? And one of the, he gives this idea, here's what we're going to do next. Here's how we're going to reach more people. And one of the campus pastors says, hey, let me go back and talk to my campus leaders to see if that idea will work in our campus. And the lead pastor looks at him and says, bro, you don't have camp a campus. I have campuses. You're just going to do what I said. And you're like, ooh, that is really vulnerable that he, he shared that. Gets to the point that they confront him and they, they force him to step down for at least six months because they're like, dude, you need to chill out a little bit. This is getting ugly. There's something growing. Here's the point, that even in a church where we say we're humbly following Jesus to become servants of Jesus and taking the lowest place, the lust for power has the ability to turn church leaders into monsters. Doesn't it? It's just like the, the ring of power in Lord of the Rings, you guys. We just keep coming back to that. Like, it's this seduction. And, and, it's, and, it, and all of us are vulnerable. If a man that is a sincere youth pastor can find himself like, I don't know who I've become. Listen, you can find yourself at a place where you're like, I don't know what I've become. This is the seduction of Babylon. So let me just close with this. We have embraced this audacious redefinition of truth that we want power, that we want satisfaction, that we, we want beauty. Like the reversal of vice and virtue occurs in us, all of us. Let me ask you this. How is that working out for you? How is it working out for you? For those of us to be honest and say, I chase down Babylon every once in a while. Or I've chased down Babylon even through the way I follow Jesus. I'd ask you, are you feeling empty, lost, or exhausted? You ever felt this way? Where you go, yeah, the seduction of this world has left me empty. It's left me lost, confused. Like, I, I don't know up from down anymore. I'm exhausted after I chase after these things that never, like, that I got that raise and it, it, it wasn't enough. Like, what is that in me? What I would say is the words of Jesus for you are good news. Um, what we offer here as the church is the gospel. That is our message. The go gospel means good news. And it is the good news that Jesus, the son of God, came down to live the life you could not live to die sinless, but in the place of sinners, 
you and me who have chased after the world and ultimately to rise again to offer a new life. And this is his offering in Matthew 11. I love the way Jesus himself invites us. He says this, come to me, all who labor, who chase down the things of this world, who chase down perfection through religion, all those who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're not a Christian, not a church person, you're like, what do you guys mean by like easy yoke here? Like, like over easy eggs? Like what, what is Jesus like talking about easy yoke? You ever, you ever wonder that? Maybe Christians here, you're like, not as versed in the Bible. You're like, I, I've never understood that. Well, a yoke is, um, this is an ancient metaphor. This is a metaphor in agricultural uh, people. A yoke is like this frame, this, um, this tool that you would put on animals. And typically, if you Google it right now, you'll see it has two sides usually, usually two sides with two hoops. And uh, what puts their head in that hoop is an ox, right? An animal. And they typically have two, especially in the ancient agricultural context that Jesus is living in, because one ox would be much stronger. And it would understand how to obey the task of its master. And then what you would do is you would put another ox in that same yoke who was weaker and did not know how to obey the master. And you start to understand this metaphor. Jesus is saying basically that he is the bigger ox. He is the one who is able to carry the burden and weight of our sin and our deepest longings that you and I cannot carry anymore. And Jesus says, come, learn from me, follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And I will give you rest for your souls and I will teach you to walk in the beautiful way. I think of um, in Acts chapter 16, there's this crazy story where Paul, uh, no, he, he's this man who's preaching the gospel. He gets arrested for it. They put him in prison <clears throat> and uh, in the middle of the night, they're singing hymns, which is like the first part that's crazy. Like, we're here in prison. Thank you, Lord. Like, what? They're singing hymns. That's the most singing you're going to get out of me. So, and the doors open because there's this earthquake and God is releasing them. Well, the jailer who was put on assignment to watch over them, he's there and he sees that they've escaped. And so um, because their fate would have fallen on him in Roman society, he takes his sword to end his own life. And as he's about to end his life, Paul and the others are like, stop, we're all here. We're all here. We've not left. Like, and he looks at him and he's like, what must I do to be saved? I think of this story because this man was the one overseeing them in prison but here's the deal. They were more free in that prison than he was as the one overlooking them. He was part of this destructive system and he needed the deepest salvation that even those in prison were more free than he. And so how do we walk in this easy yoke? How do we experience this kind of freedom? I just wanna conclude with just three real quick disciplines or practices that you could put in place even this week. You're like, what do I do with this crazy worldly message? Here's what I would suggest. Number one, that we would embrace the practice of solitude, of solitude. Solitude is where we retreat from the world to hear from God. It's where you get up an hour earlier, 30 minutes earlier, 15 minutes earlier and spend time with God. Open a Bible, begin to read a book of the Bible, pray, seek God's face, sit quietly and ask God, what do you have to say to me? 
We, we, how many of you would be honest, maybe, maybe don't raise your hands, but you're like me, and, and there's not even a bored moment in your life anymore now that you have a phone. You're literally like, even when you're, the line's long, you're like, phone. It, there's a moment to wait, phone. You're like waiting for someone else to message you on the phone, other things on your phone. You guys know what I'm talking about here. Like, we need rest from that. We need respite to seek the face of the Lord and to hear from him rather than to hear from Babylon. Secondly, do a story audit. A story audit. In other words, what narratives and lies of the culture are you being fed? And if you're honest, you're bought into. Like, bring those things to God and say, God, I believe these lies. Maybe talk to a a, a brother or sister and say, man, these are the lies that I've believed. I, I believe if I had that, my life would be better. Or if this hadn't happened, everything would be better. It's a lie of the culture. And then lastly, church. The gathering of the local church is this beautiful thing that we get where we decompress from Babylon and are reminded of the truth, even as we sing. Amen? What we're going to do now is we're going to sing. We're going to um, we're going to consider these truths that are presented even in the songs. And I want you to take stock of this. What lies am I believing? Where has Babylon gotten into me rather than me into the empire? Father, I just thank you today that you are the deepest satisfier of souls. And God, I pray for those of us who are weary, for those of us who are exhausted or confused in the midst of Babylon, that God, we would find Rest for our souls in the name of Jesus Christ, in walking with him, in knowing him, in experiencing his love and forgiveness, even today. God, I pray if there are any here who have not yet experienced that peace, that real peace, and I thank you, Father, that it's truly there, that you are truly there, that they would, that they would call on your name right now, Jesus that they would continue to explore this idea, is there rest for my soul? We love you, Lord, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen.